Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. So before we dive into the passage in John here, I, I want to share with you a story. This is just a, a fiction story, but I, I, I hope it captures our imaginations a little bit. So uh, you might like to close your eyes if you want to and just enjoy this story for a moment. <clears throat> in the land known as the Peaceful Isles lived a good and wise king named Lammas. Lammas was generous and kind, serving his people and sharing his wealth and land. In the peaceful isles under the reign of Lammas, the people flourished. Out of his generosity, he appointed others to help rule the land, gifting green pastures to others and establishing them as princes and princesses. One such prince was named Balor. Balor had once been a slave from a distant land who Lammas in his kindness rescued and gave a place of honour within his own realm. But for Balor, a, a seed of darkness lurked within his heart. And as his power grew, he began to despise Lammas. He began to imagine greater power and envied Lammas. So he spread rumours and sent out spies into the peaceful isles. Whispers began to be heard from the shadows around the realm. Lammas doesn't want what is best for you. Why should you have to share with others? You're better than them. You deserve more than them. Join Balor and he will give you all your heart desires. Wealth, fame, pastures, now. Very soon an uprising began and Balor's disciples usurped Lammas, taking his throne and banishing him. The once peaceful isles now stood divided between those who sought power for themselves and the remnant who remembered a better way of life under the rule of a good king. Society began to slowly fall apart. Poverty gripped the land as wealth was funnelled into the hands of the greedy. There remains in the peaceful isles a small remnant who still tell their children of good King Lammas, who believe Lammas, the true king, will return and set things right. Some even whisper that he is there now, and if you want to find him, he can be found, walking amongst the peasants and the poor. They tell stories of two kings, a good king and a selfish one. And they urged their children to search for Lammas, to find him and follow his ways. They long for the world that once was, a world that might be again, where goodness and justice and mercy reign. And so they carry on, quietly from the margins, living out the ways of Lammas in the back streets and alleyways, offering hope to a fractured land. 
I share this story because what we have in our passage here in John 19 today is a story of two kings. Jesus, the king of a generous and good kingdom, and Caesar, symbolic of the world's rulers who seek power above all else. It's the story of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar. And through this passage, it's really Pilate who's caught in the middle, caught between these two kings, these two kingdoms, and is wrestling with these questions, questions that I think God's word asks us to ask of ourselves today. Who is king? Who is our king? Which kingdom will we serve? And that might seem like a pretty quick, easy question to answer on the surface. We know what we should say. We know what the right answer is to that question. But what do our words and our actions reveal about us? So, so as we consider those two questions, let me challenge us not just to think about what's the right answer, but to look at our hearts and to ask what is the true answer to these questions. So you might like to have John 19 open because we're just going to work through a few, few parts of this passage. And I think, as I mentioned, it's going to be most helpful if we put ourselves in the shoes of Pilate as we hear this story because he's caught in the middle here and, and, and his experience symbolises, I think, what life is, is often like for us, certainly what it often feels like for me, a world where Caesar, Caesar, beckons us to give him our allegiance while Jesus calls us to a different way. And I find myself feeling like Pilate. You might have noticed last week too in, in chapter 18 and 19, Pilate constantly is in this movement of out, in, out, in. He goes out to the crowds. He comes back to Jesus. It's like he can't make up his mind. He's unstable and confused. He's caught in the middle and I, I find myself like that pacing back and forth in indecision, maybe trying to avoid making a decision, living on the fence, maybe trying to have our cake and eat it too. So I reckon there's a lot of pilot in me and I suspect in all of us. So the passage today opens with Pilate. He's on Jesus' side. He's trying to get Jesus released. And he's trying to appease the crowds. So it's not a very nice way of getting him released. But Jesus is sent off by Pilate to be scourged in a practice known as the halfway death. And it was called the halfway death because the Roman torturer, who was known as a lictor, would stop just this side of death to appease the accuser without the person actually being executed. But often this halfway death went too far and the person ended up dying from the wounds and the beating anyway. Commonly, ribs would be broken and lungs would be punctured. And then because a person's body can't cope with this kind of beating for long, they would give the person breaks. And during those breaks, they would shame and humiliate the person while their body recovered for the next round of beatings. We're not talking about a few lashes across the back here. 
Jesus is beaten to within an inch of his life to satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd. But such was their appetite for blood that even when the religious leaders are presented with a bloodied and shamed Jesus, there's no sign of any compassion. On seeing him battered, wearing a purple cloak, crown of thorns over his head, their immediate response is to cry out in hate, crucify him, crucify him, more blood, more blood. So Pilate's attempts, his last resort in a way to placate the mob don't work. In fact, the mob raises the stakes. They, they double down. So up until this point, around about verse 6 in, in, in the chapter here, Caesar has been pretty clear. Jesus is innocent and he doesn't want Jesus' blood on his hands. And he says in in verse 6 to the crowd, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, Pilate declares Jesus innocent. But then the mob says something that really hits a nerve. They say, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And the passage tells us that as soon as Pilate heard these words, he became even more afraid, terrified. He's really scared at this point. But what was it about those words, those particular words that rattled Pilate so much? Well, this is the first time that the crowds have used the term son of God. And for Pilate, it's a phrase thick with meaning and terror. Around the Roman emperor, Caesar, was the mystical belief that the rulers were indeed divine. So the first Caesar, Julius, was inducted into the pantheon of Roman gods himself. And so all following emperors were sons of God. Tiberius Caesar was the emperor at this point of time. He is the son of God. So Jesus claims to be the son of God challenge the divine authority of Caesar, of the powers and authorities of the world. If Pilate is seen to be supporting a usurper of the emperor's throne, then his power, his position, his wealth, even his life could well be forfeit. And so suddenly this has become much more personal for Pilate. Jesus is now a potential threat to Pilate himself and all the things he loves. The mob, they realise that they've hit a nerve and so they, they press their fingers in deeper. In verse 12, they say to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. You know, I, I really feel for Pilate at this point because he's threatened now by the crowd as being an enemy of Caesar. He's standing in this horrible position and he's asked by the crowds in very clear terms, make your choice, Pilate. Do you bow before Caesar or this Jesus? And so we've got Pilate, this little man, 
caught between two gods, one real and one false, and he's asked to judge between them. But what's even more confusing for Pilate is that both Caesar and Jesus are claiming to be the source of his authority and power. So on on the one hand, Caesar has appointed him and has political power over him. And on the other hand, Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What would you be doing if you were Pilate at this point? I, I reckon I would have packed my bags and taken a long, long vacation. It's, in, it's a very tough situation. This trial ends on the most tragic of notes, I think. The religious leaders yell out in words of national heresy and betrayal, we have no king but Caesar. Rome was the enemy of Israel. Rome were Israel's conquerors and oppressors. Israel dreamed of a day of being set free from Roman rule and clung to the hope that they would be their own people again with their own king. Yet the religious leaders' hatred of Jesus is so deep that they're willing to side with their national enemy, throw their lot in with Rome and declare, we worship Caesar. And in doing so, they commit a blasphemy more horrendous than anything they've accused Jesus of. There's this little detail that John gives us in the passage that I always overlooked. But uh, at the end, just before Pilate hands out his judgment, we're told it's the day of preparation around noon, preparing for the Passover feast. And at this time, the priests were meant to be busy preparing food for the Passover feast. They would start at noon and work all afternoon preparing lambs and the food for this important celebration. Instead, they're neglecting their duty in order to see Jesus killed. But the irony of all of this and the irony that John is pointing out here is that at the very time they were meant to be preparing lambs for the feast, they're unintentionally and accidentally preparing Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God for the great Passover feast. I suggested at the beginning of this talk that we're a lot like Pilate. I'm thankful that I'm never going to find myself in Pilate's shoes where I'm literally having to make a choice about whether the Messiah dies or not. Yet like Pilate, we live each moment in a world that is divided into two kingdoms. And on the one hand, we have the kingdom of Caesar, a kingdom that's ruled by broken and sinful humanity as a whole. Caesar represents human governments and the secular society that we live in that promises us so much. Caesar promises us wealth and happiness, security, fame, power now if we follow the ways of the world. So if we prioritise success over people, greed over generosity, power over compassion, 
we can have these things. Like Pilate, we have fallen in love with what Caesar has given us. Immediate, quick satisfaction that may be nice for a time, but will soon fade and comes at a great cost. The cost of a world where there is poverty, division and hate as people take instead of sharing and think of themselves instead of others. On the other hand, Jesus offers us the kingdom of God, a kingdom ruled by a generous, kind and just king. But the promises of this kingdom are different. It doesn't promise immediate wealth or happiness or power. In fact, it's a kingdom that says, trade those immediate treasures for something eternal something deeper, something that will last. It's a kingdom that says become a servant of others that a better, fairer, kinder world might be birthed where the poor are cared for and the slave is set free. But in such a kingdom, the princes and the princesses of this world become paupers, as they give of themselves to serve others. And so for many of us who are wealthy and living the, the good life, such a kingdom comes at a cost. Like Pilate, it comes at a cost. Pilate had to make a choice. Hold on to his power, his wealth and his authority now, by doing the bidding of Caesar or give all of that up to follow a battered and bloodied king whose kingdom satisfied his deeper longings. And it's a choice that we're all asked to make when we encounter Jesus. Even, and even though most of us have cast our lot in with Jesus and claimed Jesus as king, it doesn't stop Caesar's voice from ringing in our ears. Caesar's treasures are really tantalising. Though our lives belong to Christ, we're asked each day, who will be king this day? Who will be king this moment? I find myself like Pilate. I want both. I want all the things that Caesar offers me. I want that immediate satisfaction. But I want God too. So I want the treasures of both kingdoms. I live much of my life like Pilate, torn in indecision between two kings and two kingdoms. But to live in between, Jesus tells us, is to live with no king at all. No one can. Eventually someone will ask, which king do you serve? We see that in our world today. We see that happening more and more in our society. People confronted, do you really Follow this Jesus. If you want this job, you'll need to leave your faith at the doorstep. I feel, as I was reading through this, I, was, I feel for Christian politicians who live each day caught between Caesar and Jesus, asked to compromise 
on their faith. And I don't think I would do any better if I was in their shoes. Maybe we'll face questions from friends and families as they mock out-of-touch Christian beliefs and say, you don't believe that rubbish, do you? We, uh, this was all put in perspective this morning. At Win Malik Church, we watched a video of a, a woman from Nigeria called Rebecca. She told the story of how she and her daughter came back from gathering some food to find smoke rising from their village and that their village had been attacked. It was a, a village of Christian people and the village had been attacked, wiped out, and her husband and son died in that attack. When lives are at stake, when the life of your family is at stake and the question is asked, which king do you serve? Suddenly the stakes seem a lot higher and I don't know how I would answer in those situations. But it's not just in big ways. The question, this question of which king do we serve is asked of us every day in many little ways as well. Who will be the king of our bank card when we go shopping or the king of our family relationships when we navigate disagreements? The king of our work life as we face requests to cut corners or act in ways that border on unethical? Which kingdom vision are we living towards? Cake now or the banquet that is to come? Now, I want to say power, wealth, authority, material possessions, none of these things are evil or bad. They are gifts. They are good. It's about who rules our hearts and desires. Pilate's authority was from God. And that authority has potential for much good. But when push finally came to shove, Pilate's heart belonged to Caesar as he used his authority to condemn an innocent man to death. I'm convinced, at least for myself, that the challenge of wrestling and living between two kingdoms isn't solved by focusing on what I need to put off or get rid of. I'm convinced that the problem is that our imaginations, or at least my imagination, is too small. We can't, for the life of us, truly imagine how wondrous life would be if the world was a kind and just place where greed gave way to true generosity. We can't, for the life of us, imagine a perfect king who is good and kind and just because in our lives, except for Jesus, we have never experienced that. We haven't experienced a kingdom where lust of power succumbs to servant hearts of humility and where our king reigns in splendour and pride isn't getting in the way. I invite you to dwell on such a place. And if you want some help, listen to this from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's dwell on those words. Let our imaginations be filled by visions of God's splendour and his kingdom. Let's paint and draw pictures of this. Write poetry. Let our imaginations swell with the depths of God's kingdom beauty that we see in part now, that we catch these amazing glimpses of now, but that one day we will see in full. Because it's as our imaginations are filled with the kingdom of God and our longings for little things give way to eternal things that we'll find ourselves whispering with delight, we have no king but Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, would it be that we could say with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, we have no king but Jesus. Our we, when we look at our hearts, know you are our king and yet we live in this tension. We hear the call of Caesar, the tantalising promises of cake now and we, uh, we love that. It feeds our desires for a time. And yet, Lord, those little desires are just shadows of our deeper desires of longing for you. And ultimately, all of our needs are met in you. May you teach us to actually believe that and to swell our imaginations with pictures of your kingdom that we might long for you and that we might live in this world faithfully serving you and living out glimpses of your kingdom for the world to see. Amen.